Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Dialogue. Dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue. Dialogue journal. Dialogue. Dialogue. It's the 50th anniversary of Dialogue. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, a member of the Dialogue Board of Directors. How much do you know about Pentecostalism? Have you ever wondered what a Pentecostal scholar would think of the Book of Mormon? What Pentecostalism and Mormonism have in common? Today's podcast will help answer some of those questions. Our guest is Dr. John Christopher Thomas, Professor of Biblical Studies at the Pentecostal Theological Seminary in Cleveland, Tennessee. I think you'll find Chris a delightful and interesting speaker. A quick request. Dialogue depends on the generosity of its listeners and subscribers to keep it financially viable. Please consider a donation, which you can easily make by going to our website at dialoguejournal.com. Thanks so much. And now to our podcast, featuring Chris Thomas speaking to a gathering of the Miller-Eccles Study Group in Orange County, California. It's my privilege to introduce our speaker tonight, Dr. John Christopher Thomas. He goes by Dr. Thomas and goes by Chris, Chris Thomas. He's an author and theologian, a New Testament scholar, and a member of the Pentecostal faith. He will be speaking to us tonight about his new book called A Pentecostal Reads the Book of Mormon, A Literary and Theological Introduction. We had an opportunity to visit with him tonight during dinner and just thoroughly entertaining and informative. I know we're in for a real treat tonight. He comes to us from Athens, Tennessee, where he is Professor of Biblical Studies at the Pentecostal Theological Seminary. He's also the Director of the Center for Pentecostal and Charismatic Studies at Bangor University in Bangor, Wales, in the UK. He received his PhD at the University of Sheffield. And through the course of his career, he has published articles in major journals devoted to the study of the New Testament commentaries on the book of Revelation, the book of John, the origin of illness illness in the New Testament thought, and numerous others. If you go online, you'll see he has a long, very long list of publications. He's also editor-in-chief of the Journal of Pentecostal, Pentecostal Theology. He's married, and he's the father of two married daughters. He likes to ride his motorcycle long distances. His book is on sale here tonight for $20, which is a discount from what you'd be able to get it online through Amazon. So it's in the back, and uh, we'll be selling it, and come and see one of us. You can purchase it, and you can use your credit card if you prefer. You know, most of us have read and studied the Book of Mormon all of our lives, and we tend to think about it in one way or kind of in a limited way because we're taught through Sunday school, we have the same course of study every four years, and so it will be refreshing to hear uh, a point of view from an outsider, a person who is an expert in scripture study and scripture analysis, and under- be able to understand his perspective on a book that we consider the keystone of our religion. I'll turn the time now over to Dr. Thomas. Are you better in <laughs> 
Well, thanks very much. Uh, it's a delight to be here. I'm afraid that the most important part of the introduction was left out, and that is that I have a two-year-old granddaughter uh, to whom this book is dedicated. And so uh, that, that, that small bit. Now, I, uh, it's a great delight for me to be with you. I'm, I'm quite honored to be here. Hey, Rob, Robert, is that right? Yeah, good to see you again. I've never been in an institute building. Uh, before I've seen many, uh, and somebody was kind enough to say, "Well, if you've been in this one, you've been in them all because they're very similar." So I'll know where the men's room is wherever I am in the country. Uh, I'm really delighted to be here. From the conversation at dinner, I was saying that what we need is about five nights to do things because there's so many interesting aspects of, of all of this. Let me begin. Uh, with the with the testimony, uh, I think that's uh, the language of your tradition, and it's certainly the language of my tradition. Very quickly, my first encounter with the Book of Mormon was in 1974, January of 1974. I'm glad to see some people in the room who actually remember 1974. <laughs> I tell that to a lot of the young people I lecture to, and they're like, 1974, what was that like? <laughs> like I'm speaking Klingon or something. And... Uh, was in a choir, came through Salt Lake, saw the tabernacle and the acoustic uh, demonstration with the drop of a pen, and made our way over to the visitor center and was given one of those iconic blue covers of the Book of Mormon with the uh, angel Moroni on the front. From there, I encountered um, literature that was written to convince Mormons of the error of their ways. Uh, I spent a lot of time with a couple of elders, some missionary elders in my hometown. We met weekly. Um, we had a deal that they could ask me anything about the Bible they wanted, and I would ask them anything about the Book of Mormon that I wanted, and we'd take a week and do our homework and come back and compare notes. Eventually, they were told they couldn't hang out with me anymore by those over them in the Lord. And uh, I said, well, I understand. Uh, but they said, you know, we got Mondays off. We can do what we want to on Mondays. So uh, we continued our friendship. I went off to seminary, uh, took a BYU home study course on early Mormon history. Uh, it, it began, of course, it was uh, Joseph Smith and the Restoration by Ivan Barrett was the, the book we read. And um, it ended with the tail lights on the wagons crossing the Mississippi. That's kind of how I, I remembered that. Used it as the basis of a graduate course, actually, at, in seminary. From there, read all kinds of things. And about mm, three years ago, decided, so I was going on sabbatic, I bought my first motorbike when I was 50 over the objections of my wife and daughters. And I said, I am 50 years old. I will buy a 150 Vespa scooter if I want to. Thank you very much. <laughs> and uh, about three years ago, I was going on sabbatic, and I had to keep my day job, you know. So I was, uh, was going to write a commentary, finish up a commentary on Revelation. And I thought, I'd like to study the Book of Mormon at graduate level with somebody that knows the Book of Mormon. And preferably somebody on the inside who, who who still regarded the book as scripture. And so I uh, made arrangements to do such a course at the Community of Christ Seminary in Independence. 
and um, between arranging for the course and showing up for the week of dialogue, I realized what all this was about, my preoccupations. I was supposed to write a book on the Book of Mormon. I felt uh, called uh, by the Spirit to do that, uh, as I have on other, my, my other major research projects. Uh, I was telling folk tonight at dinner, when I tell LDS folk that, they get that look in their eye like, Aslan is on the move, right? Uh, to quote the Chronicles of Narnia, I tell my Pentecostal friends about that, and they're like, what do you think the Lord's up to and all that? Here was what generated it all. 90% of what I read about the Book of Mormon was evidentialism. It was, it is true for these reasons. It's not true for those reasons. As a biblical scholar, I wasn't so interested in the origin stuff. I mean, the origin stuff's interesting stuff, but I was interested in the structure of the book. I was interested in the content of the book. You know, I told them at the Church History Library in Salt Lake last month, I said it was like you had a meeting here in Salt Lake and decided whoever writes about the Book of Mormon we're just going to tell these seven stories out of it and nothing else. So that if I hear about the 2,000 stripling warriors one more time, I'm going to scream, right? I mean, you get those stories, but you don't really know what's in the book, right? So I wanted to know that. I, wanted, I was interested in the theology of the book, not a comparison with the Bible so much, but what does the book itself say theologically? And to my surprise, there had been very little done on that in terms of the literature that I had access to was interested in the reception of the book, both by the faithful and those who are not faithful uh, in terms of the claims of the book. I wanted to put the book into conversation with my own tradition. Uh, Pentecostalism and uh, Mormonism, at least in its origins, Mormonism, share a similar kind of worldview. Um, Lots of evangelicals are much more rationalists than Pentecostals are. So you say to a Pentecostal, um, yeah, an angel appeared to me. Well, our first thought's not, you're nuts. Our first thought is, okay, tell me more about this. We need to discern our way through this because, you know, not everybody who claims to speak for God does, in fact, speak for God, right? And if you haven't had enough of that in your tradition, we certainly have in ours. So... Uh, interested in those kind of connections, um, gave a little kind of overview of, of issues about origins that I wish I had known before I'd done, I'd done the study. So what you have in this book really is a book I wish I could have read uh, rather than having written. What I've tried to do in the book is read with the grain. And so in the flyover we're going to do here, I will uh, uh, get, get at that as we go along. The first uh, slide I want to show you is something I'm very proud of. You know, pride goes before, you know, fall. Number one, new release in Mormonism. What What about that? I happened to take that screenshot in the 15 minutes. It was actually number one. (laughs) And so, you know, I recruited everybody I knew to buy a copy and buy it on the same day. So, no, I I didn't. But anyway, uh, I thought that might be appreciated by this group. So here's here's how I structure the book. I want to look at the structure of the Book of Mormon. I want to look at the content. I want to look at the theology, the reception history, Pentecostalism in the Book of Mormon. 
and then a bit on origins. I close the book with what I call Confessions of a Pentecostal Reader. So let's begin by looking at the structure of the book. For me, I am convinced in biblical studies that if you know the structure of a book, you already know a lot about the book. Because the structure is not some kind of um, busy work assignment you give to people. The structure allows you to see the flow and content of the document, right? So as I began, uh, you're very familiar with this list of, of books. Um, part of what happened as I began to look at the book was I found there were two things that helped me find my way around the structure. One of those was the significance of Mormon and Moroni and where they show up in the book. It's almost as though, and and all this is from an outsider, okay, it's almost as though they show up in ways that help you as a reader make your way through things and they reassure you along the way about the trustworthiness of this or that. Okay? And they show up in a variety of significant places. Let me just go through a couple of those. They appear often appear together. They form an inclusio around the whole book. And the title page is Mormon and Moroni. The very end, we've got... Uh, a Mormon and uh, even in the book of Moroni. They had a variety of strategic locations they appear. They orient us as we read through the book, apprising us of specific plates and records that we're coming upon, assuring us of the trustworthiness of the accounts. In each case, it seems that they appear when we encounter a new set of plates from which the record is drawn. They stand at the beginning, the title page. They stand at the end of the small plates. They stand at the end of the other plates of Nephi. And on either side of the plates found by the people of Limhi, you'll hear me pronounce words terribly, so just bear with me. Uh, as we say in my tradition, bear with me while I tune my guitar as we get ready to sing. Uh, that may be my wife now calling. Uh, Mormon or Moroni appear as structural markers throughout the book. And as I reflected more and more on that, what I discovered was, for me, I found my way around in the book based on their major appearances. Okay, Now you can do it in a lot of different ways, but that was one of the things that helped me kind of get drawn into the narrative, right? And, and the Book of Mormon, for the most part, is one extended narrative, right? Which uh, 75%, 70% of the, of the Bible is that. Book of Mormon can even make a, a greater claim to narrative than that, and I'm a narrative kind of person. Second thing that helped me with the structure was the chronological indicators that you find in the book. There are three sets of these. Time is kept from the time Lehi leaves Jerusalem. Then you get that 100-year reign of the judges. Then you get the time counted from the prediction of Jesus' birth. Seems to me that a lot of people know about that, but nobody really put it together in terms of how you can make your way through the whole book based on those kind of chronological indicators. right? So you've got that list of the first category. 
And so that's how it starts to play out from 1 Nephi to Mosiah. Then you get the reign of the judges. I think there's 100 years, 91 of which are, are, are actually talked about in the book itself. And this is how they kind of fall. You then get all of these about the birth of Jesus. And that's what they look like in terms of where they occur. So when you put them all together, if you can make, make that out, you see how that you begin here and you basically end up here. As an outsider, that was very helpful in orienting me as a reader. I could kind of keep track of where I am chronologically. And so, you just make a couple of more comments about all of that. There are three primary modes of marking chronology. The first two essentially conclude at the same time, and their, their conclusions overlap with the beginning of the final one. The final one, not surprisingly, is a very significant moment, the coming of Christ. right? And so it's, it's, it's quite interesting to me the way those, uh, those appear. So I was on my way. I, I, I made a presentation at the Society for Mormon Philosophy and Theology at uh, UVU later. I think it was in 2013. And uh, was was well received and uh, appreciated that very much. Let me talk just a little bit about content. You know what the content is. But for me... What I wanted to do was to work through these books and think about their structure and their narrative kind of purpose. And and that's how I would deal with biblical texts. So, 1 Nephi. One of the first things I noticed about 1 Nephi after I read through it in my 1830 uh, facsimile edition, right? Don't get too greedy. I don't have a real one, just the... I do have an 1874 Lamoni one, but but that's neither here nor there. I noticed this phrase that appeared three times, and thus it is amen, that appears in 9.6, and 22.31. What's suggested to me as a literary critic, that's the structure of the book. And the more I dug into the structure of the book, the more I realized that that indeed was the structure of the book, And what sometimes gets lost is in this section, part two, we begin with Nephi being grounded in his father's stuff. You know, he says, I've finished with him. I'm now going to talk about my ministry, et cetera, et cetera. But the first thing he does is we get these, these words about his father, right? So that grounds him in that. But by the time we get through 1430, he has had the most incredible, revelatory, prophetic vision of all of history that is to come that you find in the Book of Mormon or in the Bible, either one. And by the time he starts to lead the community alongside Lehi, it it then becomes clearer and clearer how that Nephi takes the leadership. He is prepared as a spirit-endowed spokesperson. Somebody that had read some of my stuff said, well, why don't you just go ahead and call him a prophet? I said, I don't think the text ever calls him a prophet. But it's clear that he is endowed by the Spirit and is speaking kind of these revelatory words, right? 
So paying attention to structure has a payoff in terms of theological meaning. So, so then I looked at, just to give you one other example, I looked at 3 Nephi. And one of the things that I found about 3 Nephi is the way in which Mormon's words punctuate each of the major sections. So there are four major sections if you use Mormon's words as the literary markers that help you make your way through the book. So in, uh, in terms of uh, the structure, it helped me move through that, right? It helped me get, have an idea of how, how that moves. Now let me just mention a couple of other structural sort of observations out of that 120 pages or so of content, you know, which one of my colleagues said, well, having read that, I think what you need to call this book is more than you ever wanted to know about the Book of Mormon, <laughs> right? So, uh, it struck me that how, how that the words, that Jacob's words actually surround the words of Nephi. Because you get Jacob, then you get Nephi's, in, in, in Second Nephi, then you get Nephi's words, and then that gets followed up with Jacob's words, right? It's kind of an interesting sort of detail. The other, th the other thing was one of these discoveries that made my eyes pop out of my head. I'm reading along, and uh, again, you know, I'm in my study there in Riceville, Tennessee. We don't even have a traffic light. <laughs> and uh, I come upon this story of the, is it the anti-Lehi-Nehi's? Is that right? <laughs> Nephi's. My bad. I was thinking of grape soda for a moment. Uh, <laughs> occupational hazard. And uh, I'm reading this story, and all of a sudden it dawns on me, I'm in the middle of this book. So I, I hold the book up, and I say, yeah, it looks like it's in the middle. So then I do the page count in the 1830 edition, and it's in the middle. So then I write my friend Grant Hardy and say, Grant, do you have access to any word counts? He says, write John Hilton at BYU. So I write John. He sends me all these word counts. It's bang in the middle. Now the historians, when I tell them about that, they say, oh, isn't that an interesting coincidence? But if you're a literary person, you're like, that's not a coincidence. Something that's in the very heart of the book is very significant. Okay? It happened to be the this, this uh, it's one of my favorite stories in the Book of Mormon, this incredible story about these Lamanite converts who bury their weapons. So we'll, we'll come back to that. But, but again, just to, to, to a little indication of how that structural dimensions kind of result in theological freight, if you will. So I was very interested in the, the theology of the Book of Mormon. And I was interested in not outside categories being placed over on the Book of Mormon, but, but what categories arise naturally from the text itself, right? Some of them are those shared with lots of other groups. You know, do a section on theology proper on God, uh, which uh, seems to me in the Book of Mormon you got a, basically a Trinitarian understanding of God with some modalistic fuzziness <coughs> around the edges. And I had lunch with a friend of mine who's a systematic theologian today, uh, 
who wrote a commentary in Revelation with me, and, and he was talking to me about this. And when I said that, he started laughing. He said, That's, that describes many of us, doesn't it? <laughs> Basically, Trinitarian with some modalistic fuzziness. The Christology is just interesting, and we're going to look at that in a, in a moment. All the stuff on the pneumatology, which as far as I know, had never been mined. And I did an article for the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies on the Holy Spirit in the Book of Mormon, or the Holy Ghost. And uh, uh, as Pentecostal, obviously, that's interesting, right? Fall, atonement, salvation. you got like three or four different ecclesiologies. Uh, the church, right? That, that one runs across in the Book of Mormon. If you read the Book of Mormon, angels uh, defines its own category, doesn't it? Uh, they're all over the place. How do they function? What's their theological <coughs> importance? War and peace. We may look at that a bit more. But, but in the Book of Mormon, I mean, there seems to be a distinctive theology of the plates. Just think about how important the plates are and what their theological function is. And then I have a little thing called a few other matters. I was struck, especially early in the book, how much murmuring appeared. Right? And it seems to disappear. But what's its theological function? Right? Nephi seems to come off looking awful good while everybody else is murmuring. Right? But it says something about, murmuring says something about one's response to prophetic insight. And uh, that seems to me important in the Book of Mormon. Uh, polygamy, which is, just seems to be roundly condemned. I mean, you got that one little statement that people say, yeah, but, you know, it, it may. But, I mean, the, the, it's, it's in the middle of the, well, you, you know all about that. Then the role of women. Uh, and we may talk about that in a moment, or, or their lack of role, some have said. And then the fact that you get a lot about hell in the Book of Mormon, despite how it gets, I would say, demythologized later in the tradition, right? But it's not in the Book of Mormon. It's, it's, it, it functions pretty, pretty significantly. So, talk about Christology just a moment. The Christology is very radical in various ways. And, in, and, you know, to an outsider then, much more interesting. Because you get all this pre-Christian stuff going on in the Book of Mormon. Right, you get bits of knowledge that haven't heard, occurred yet. You get acts of Jesus. You then get the you know the resurrection appearances of Jesus to the Nephites uh, in the Americas, probably the claim to fame, right? That most people know about the book. You know what they know about Pentecostals? We speak in tongues. What they know about the Book of Mormon? If they know anything about the Book of Mormon, is Jesus comes to North America. Then you get a variety of titles and identities that I try to pay attention to, the relationship between Jesus and the atonement. But the thing I want to mention here is to talk about theologically what's going on with this pre-Christian stuff. Quite frankly, those kind of anachronistic sort of appearances really threw me off for a long time in reading the book. I was talking to a friend of mine who was reading my stuff, and I, and I said, I'm having a problem with the anachronisms. It's getting in my way of kind of making my way through. He says, oh, you mean the fact that still is mentioned, but it's not you know, invented to last? I said, no, 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 not that stuff. It's all the pre-Christian stuff. But as I thought theologically about it, I think the book 
the book tries to make sense of it theologically, or let me put it this way: the book makes sense of that theologically. I think you have to. I think you have to engage the book to come to that point. Some people could just miss this, dismiss this phenomenon out of hand as saying it's not capable of theological explanation. Right? It's just. It's an, it's an error, or it's Joseph reading everything in. I mean, but regardless of where it all comes from, the book itself seems to explain the phenomenon. And you find that in Alma 39, 17 through 19, where you have these words, Behold, you marvel why these things should not be known so long beforehand. Behold, I say unto you, it's not a soul... Is not a soul at this time as precious to God as a soul will be at the time of his coming? Is it not as necessary that the plan of redemption should be made known unto this people as well as to their children? Is it not easy for God to do such a thing? So clearly the implication to me is that it's fundamentally unfair for one generation to have access to the details about Jesus and his salvific mission while another generation does not have access to that. It seems it's certainly not something God shouldn't be able to do if he is God. They seem to offer an explanation to me of this distinctive aspect. You know, the Book of Mormon comes off looking like it has much more prophetic insight about such matters than, say, those kinds of uh, bits of knowledge in the Old Testament about the New but it's one thing to, to try to make sense of it that way. It's another thing when you try to construct a Christology of the Book of Mormon. And, and here I, I, got, I got some help from a guy at BYU named Nick Frederick. I don't know if you know Nick. I think he did his Ph.D. at Claremont, actually. In New Testament scholarship, in the Gospel of John, there is this phenomenon of the two ages, you know, this age and the coming age of the Messiah. And in New Testament eschatology, you often get it stated like this. Listen for the voice inflection. We have this age and the age to come, right? But in John, you have this age and the age to come. The, the age to come is already here. They call that a realized eschatology the effects of the end. Already you are judged. Already you have eternal life. Nick came up with this phrase called realized messianism, which as a Johannine scholar, I thought, wow, that's very nice. I mean, that's, that's quite helpful because if, if that's what's going on, then, then the anachronistic dimensions, you can say, it seems to me, makes theological sense that there is this in, at least in the storyline of the Book of Mormon there is this presence of Jesus that breaks in from from where we normally think of it residing right it's already having these moments let me mention a couple other things on theological points and that is uh, the Holy Ghost and speaking in tongues Say, now, if you didn't expect the Pentecostal to talk about speaking in tongues, then, you know, it's not too late to get out of the seminars. <laughs> I would say to my students at the seminary, it's not too late to drop the course, all right, if you can't put that one together. I was struck by the tight connection between the baptism of fire and spirit and speaking in tongues. And you get that explicitly stated in Second Nephi, early on in the book. 
In fact, it is so tightly connected that my eyes popped out of my head because that looked very much like Pentecostals understand that. I mean, Mormons, uh, Mormonism, and the Book of Mormon, I think, on this point, they're not always the same, but on this one, I, I think they are. That's an initiatory moment, right? That's when you, that's when you receive salvation. You get the gift of the Spirit. But in the Book of Mormon, when you get the gift of the Spirit, glossolalia is expected. For Pentecostals, and we will talk about this maybe, uh, spirit baptism is a distinct work from, from initial you know, salvation. And glossolalia is the expected sign of that. So there's this real interesting kind of overlap that we'll see. Often you get tongues spoken of as indicating the continuing activity of God's spirit. You know, all over the place. Tongues will almost stand as the, the sign for all of spiritual gift kind of activity. And usually it is, uh, this is the sign of the true church. When this is not present, you know something about whether people are in the church or not. Right? So you get a variety of texts that in one way or another uh, expand on that theme. Then there were about three or four places that it seems to me that you may have kind of implicit uh, references to tongue speech. Uh, in Alma, the, uh, the queen who utters these words that no one understands. There's a text in Helaman that... that uh, it gets at a similar thing, and, and it might even be that what's going on with Jesus in Third Nephi, one could understand that way. I'm not saying those are understood by the Book of Mormon to be glossolalia, but they might be if you if you have. There's this guy at uh, well, he's now in Salt Lake. Some of you may know him, Richard Rust, who did a feasting on the Word book years ago. He's a professor of literature and. And he was one of the people that pointed one or two of those my way, a couple of other, other folk. But as I would read through, I was struck by that. Another theological thing I want to mention briefly is the whole business on war and peace. War is described at most every turn in the book. I mean, there's so much bloody war, pardon my language, that, uh, that you're like, not another battle. It reminds me of when I went to uh, one of the Lord of the Rings midnight showings with one of my daughters, and and so you know I'm I'm fighting it already when I get in the in the theater, and and eventually I just nod off, you know, and I'm asleep about 20 minutes. They were fighting when I went to sleep. They were fighting when I woke back up. That's kind of what the Book of Mormon sometimes feels like to me, right? So I don't want to belabor that because you know all that better than I know. But what struck me as very interesting is that there are some subversive texts in the Book of Mormon about war. Not least of which is that converted Lamanite business. I mean, it's such a powerful story that even when they decide we're going to have to pick up weapons and defend ourselves, they're not allowed to. But then you get Jesus' words about not taking life. 
And, you know, you get that paralleled in the Sermon on the Mount. It's funny to me that some people can read 3 Nephi and they're really excited about Jesus appearing in North America, but they don't pay any attention to these words that condemn taking life. And then, of course, you get the Golden Age that only lasts a little while. I mean, it, it, what, 200 years, but it's, it's not much narrative time. I mean, it's like, what, 19 verses? Which, just to tell you the truth, I was kind of disappointed with when I, when I saw that. They're really, the, the Lamanite converts are really the only ones in the book outside the Golden Age that live in accord with what Jesus has said. Then you get Mormon's critique of war at the end. If you've been with Mormon through all of this stuff, by the time you get there, you hear the anguish in his voice. You hear the futility of what war can lead to. And then you get that nice little piece in Moroni that talks about the peaceable followers of Chris. No, that should be Christ. You know, I sometimes get mail that. No, don't take a picture of that and put it on the internet. Uh, I'm playing Robert. Uh, I sometimes get mail that's addressed to Christ Thomas, and I, and I will usually respond by saying I don't really require that. Um, and if you have a Messiah complex already, it doesn't help you a whole lot, right? Uh, peaceable followers of, of Chris. I really like that, though. You know, sometimes the mistakes make all the difference, don't they? Women in the Book of Mormon. When I started reading, well, let me back up. It seems to me that it may well be significant that the stories of the Book of Mormon women are framed by the narratives involving, do you say Sarah or Sariah? Sariah, thanks very much. Uh, that was not a rhetorical question. Uh, they're framed by Sariah's story on the one hand and the daughter of Jared on the other. Both women are given voice which doesn't always happen with the women folk, right, in the Book of Mormon. And they are given more, more spaces allotted to them than normally devoted to women. However, the potential optimism which Sariah's appearance brings, despite her need for Lehi's intervention to help her understand spiritualities, gives way to a disheartening, conniving figure in the actions of Jared's daughter, who aside from some sympathy shown for her father is a wholly culpable person. The fact that she is the last woman of significance mentioned in the book may suggest that a very negative view of women wins out. Significantly, whilst Sariah has Lehi to function as a spiritual guide, the daughter of Jared does not have such a guide perhaps suggesting that in the Book of Mormon, women are to be viewed as in need of a man's moral oversight. Uh, I've tried that with my wife, and it doesn't work. I just usually just quote the scripture that says, as the centurion said to Jesus, I too am a man under authority. <laughs> I was asked once, do I believe in equality of marriage? I said, if I could get to that point, I'd be very happy. <laughs> a second kind of observation is there may be an intended contrast between the stolen daughters of the Lamanites and the abused handmaiden. Uh, of Morianton, whereas the stolen daughters seem resigned to their fate and will even defend their captor husbands when they're discovered. The abused handmaiden demonstrates a strength not only to break free from her oppressive lord, but also to save the Nephite forces. 
she exhibits an active rather than passive disposition and in my estimation comes closer to being a heroine than most of the other women in the book. Third, it appears that in some ways King Lamoni's wife and her servant Abish, Abish? Abish. Abish. All right, because, you know, I knew the ether, ether kind of stuff, so I'm, I'm finding my way. Uh, that she and uh, her servant stand in contrast to the harlot Isabel. While both the former individuals may be viewed positively, despite the mixed signals sent to the reader as to their overall function, the harlot's viewed in wholly negative terms. The action of the queen and her servant suggests that women may very well need supervision by a male to ensure that they accomplish God's will in their lives. So that's kind of my narrative analysis. I kind of wondered about those balancing things. Now, you know, the great thing about the way I do scholarship is in my readings is um, I could be wrong, but I... I gave up a long time ago on thinking I could be right about everything. But it is my reading. I mean, that's how it struck me. And as the father of two daughters, I'm rather sensitive to the issue of women. And uh, so, there we go. Reception history. Reception history is like, rather than focusing on where the source of water is that comes out of a mountain, reception is trying to trace where the water goes. I have a whole long section on the groups for whom the book functions as scripture. Now, for my money, Strang recapitulates the life of Joseph. I wish I had time to talk about that. Joseph had plates nobody could see. Strang has plates people can see. Joseph runs for president. Strang serves in the Michigan uh, House of Representatives. Joseph starts out without polygamy, winds up with polygamy. Strang starts out without polygamy, winds up with polygamy. It's almost as though Strang uh, lives out Joseph's life, right? And uh, you know much better than I about all the complications with the issues surrounding things. I wish I could talk more about this. Let me just lift up to you the Church of Jesus Christ with headquarters in Monongahela, pretty close to where my wife uh, family is from. I've been able to, to, to meet with them. They're an interesting bunch uh, who's very charismatic in their worship. Uh, they were integrated racially from the beginning and women uh, have a, a freer role than most other places in the restoration. They only accept the Book of Mormon out of, uh, out of the Smith corpus. Though. They don't do DNC or, or any other documents. So I kind of look what, what has happened? Well, all of these groups do in some way uh, have been influenced and considered this scripture. I look at early Gentile responses to the book, and um, I have to say that Mark Twain is one of the funniest human beings I've ever read. And if you can laugh at yourself, have at it. And if you can't, might as well not bother. My, the funniest thing to me that Twain ever said was not the chloroform in print thing, right? It was in the book of Ether after, you know, the king sees like three million of people killed. And it says, the text says, and he began to sorrow. 
And Twain says, undoubtedly, it was time. <laughs> right. I mean, he, I, my only regret about Twain is he didn't live long enough to witness the Pentecostal revival because he would have said some really good stuff about us. Right. So try to give just a sense of those real early kind of responses there. I look at music. Um, this hymn, Hymn 63, Oh, Stop and Tell Me, Red Man, Who Are Ye, Why You Roam? You can just kind of pick out all the stuff. This was in the, the hymnal that Emma helped put together. I also look at the musical, the Book of Mormon musical, which has very little to do with the Book of Mormon, as most of you will probably know if you are allowed to even know what's in the musical. I know there's some concern there. Uh, but there is one or two songs you can see a distinctive influence from the Book of Mormon. I also looked at art in the Book of Mormon. Uh, I found the earliest extant piece of art in uh, that's based on the Book of Mormon by David Hiram Smith's Lehi's Dream. Uh, you know David Hiram. Emma's pregnant with him when Joseph's killed. Uh, this is in the Community of Christ Visitor Center in Nauvoo. Uh, they graciously allowed me to uh, use that. We really wanted to use it on the cover for obvious reasons, but we just couldn't make the colors work on the cover. And But that's kind of one of the things I'm most proud of. We know pretty much when it was painted, it has certain dates, or it has Plano written on the back canvas in two spots. This is, and we know when David is institutionalized, so this is early 70s, okay? Uh, the next one uh, that I look at briefly, Reuben Kirkham's uh, did this panorama, of all these Book of Mormon scenes, that he would go into these communities, set it all up, he would do acting as well. He did it for the brethren. Uh, they all uh, approved it. Uh, this is uh, his, this is, the only thing that exists from it is a photo of that panel of Alma baptizing. And then, of course, my personal favorite is Minerva Tigard. Uh, fortunately, my last trip to BYU, all of her, uh, murals were on display, and so I was able to to make my way around, and, you know, that's kind of what I think about it, right? I mean, it's just, it's lovely. I like her because she puts women in where they're only implicitly part of the story. She has different kind of eyes, and she's just kind of an amazing character. Disastrous Interpretations of the Book of Mormon. The reason I included this is I included it in my book, Revelation. And to qualify, not over the Book of Mormon, but the book of Revelation, and in the book of, Mor uh, in the book of Revelation, to qualify as a disastrous interpretation, somebody had to die. Okay, you couldn't just get swindled out of your mind, okay, which is disastrous enough, right? Well, Book of Mormon, two sets of murders, both, set, both sides of the tradition. Uh, the Lafferty murders, uh, just a tragic story. Uh, folk on the outside of the Utah LDS Church part ways at a certain point, and the Kirtland, Ohio murders on the, at that point, the RLDS side, both of whom appeal to the murder of Laban as justification in their actions. That's not the intent of First Nephi, any more than the, you know, the Beatles' helter-skelter was intended to cause Manson to do what he does, or Revelation 9, the four angels being the lads from Liverpool. I mean, a helter-skelter in England, it's a carnival ride, 
You go up to the top, you come down to the bottom, right? That's not the intent, but it's, that's how it's received. That's how this gets received. Pentecostalism in the Book of Mormon, I do three things. I look at individuals who cross paths with Mormons that were significant in my tradition. I then look at early Pentecostal attitudes toward Mormonism in the Book of Mormon, and then I try to compare Pentecostal theology and the Book of Mormon. Uh, Edward Irving, the Irvingites, there's an Irvingite pastor who shows up in Kirk, Kirtland, talks to Smith about amalgamating, says he can bring thousands of folk from England. Um, he winds up not coming back after the meeting, taking a teaching job up in Painesville, Ohio, not far from Kirtland, but Painesville's claim to fame. My wife was born there. Uh, and uh, But years later, you know, like six years later, Smith writes this extensive kind of rebuttal of the Irving Eyes in Times and Seasons, uh, showing why he thinks they're not right. In part, he, he says they're wrong because women play such a leading role in the movement. Uh, John Alexander Dowie, this is one of my favorite stories. John Alexander Dowie is a guy who's educated in Scotland, winds up as a pastor in Australia, comes to the States to do, to do evangelistic work, passing through lands in Salt Lake, is given access to the church, talks about joining the church, talks about becoming an apostle. When he's informed it doesn't quite work that way, he castigates the bunch, goes to Chicago, founds Zion City, shares a number of points of commonality, becomes a threat to the brethren because he is threatening to come back to Utah with 3,000 evangelists and convert the whole lot of the Mormons, to which the brethren say, well, come on, right? See what you can do. Uh, there were, in the, in the newspapers, the Salt Lake City newspapers, there are 136 references to John Alexander Dowie. They're tracking him. He's a threat. What they didn't fully understand, but it's only recently come to light, is part of what he was going to do is to say, now this is 1903, 1904, that God had revealed to him the reinstitution of polygamy. 1903, I mean, I say this very kindly, we're still in the mop-up period, right? <laughs> and that everybody needs to follow him down to Mexico and live this out. Well, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on what you're interested in, Dowie dies before he gets out there. But you can only imagine what that would have generated amongst folk who were not satisfied with the manifesto and who were trying to figure out how that fits with what they have, have come across earlier. So Dowie's really interesting. Charles Fox Parham has often been regarded as one of the fathers of Pentecostalism. I put him in there because he had a, a similar British Israelism to, uh, and I never can remember his first name, to Reynolds. Um, George. George Reynolds. It's almost identical and, it's, and they live at the very same time. Uh, so it's interesting the way those things cross paths. 
Uh, if we had more time, I would go into detail on early Mormon uh, or early Pentecostal attitudes. Let me just mention two things quickly. One is that uh, in the very first reference to Mormonism in an early Pentecostal periodical piece, 1908, one of the editors gets a question, why don't you talk about Mormons talking in tongues? Okay. The editor doesn't appreciate the insinuation, for one thing. He doesn't trust the leadership of the LDS church. But he then says, but my experience has basically, he says, my experience has led me to believe that God may have a people even among these people. And he gives an account of an encounter with a woman, older woman who had been a Methodist, which I thought given what was being said back and forth, was a rather generous first statement between our traditions. Early Pentecostals knew a fair amount about details about the Book of Mormon. Uh, Clearly, you're going to guess, polygamy plays a part in what is said, right? Um, And uh, uh, so... um, Pentecostal theology in the Book of Mormon. The heart of Pentecostal theology is what we call the fivefold gospel. That Jesus is Savior, He is Sanctifier, He's Spirit Baptizer, He's Healer, He's Soon Coming King. For Pentecostals, it's not so much an order of salvation as a way of salvation. It's not that you just know these facts. The goal is to know Jesus as Savior. It changes one's dispositions. It changes one, transforms one. To know him as sanctifier, that is wholehearted devotion to God. No holdouts. Uh, We can talk a lot about that, but it's a changing of affections. Holy Spirit baptizer, that there's an experience of the Spirit in which one is saturated with the Spirit, and one of the first signs is that people speak with other tongues. Other issues are prophecy, continuing revelation. The thing about prophecy is I'm struck by how in the Book of Mormon prophecy seems to focus more on individual prophets. And they don't seem in the Book of Mormon narrative to me to be accountable to the community. The community is accountable to the prophets. And the way people respond, either positively or negatively, is how they get assessed in the Book of Mormon. Pentecostalism, there's a much more kind of democratized understanding of the role of the Spirit. That anyone can prophesy. That even children can prophesy if so moved by the Spirit. Right? And so, continuing revelation, Pentecostals believe in the revelation that will continue, but Pentecostals have drawn the line around Uh, continuing inspired utterances and even documents and those that are intended to be inscripturated. Okay? So you get some pretty firm lines drawn there. You've got (coughs) early Pentecostals who would write down messages in tongues and the interpretation for local purposes, but they never rose to the level of Scripture. And so Pentecostals would see all those references in the Old Testament, for example, to books that we no longer have as likely having been inspired but not inspired as Scripture. That there are different functions in terms of the way that works. And, and in terms of the role of women, 
Pentecostals have, uh, from the get-go, uh, women have functioned prominently. Uh, most of the Pentecostal denominations now have no restrictions on how far women can rise in ministry, even uh, within uh, ordination. I'm not going to say anything about origins, and that's been said about that already. Let me say something about the confessions of the Pentecostal reader. I discovered a lot about the Book of Mormon that I didn't know. Uh, I had no idea really what all was in there. Uh, What I knew is, you know, bits and pieces. I knew a bit more about what was not in the Book of Mormon that Mormons believed than what was actually in the Book of Mormon. I wondered if there would be dialogue partners. And I have to say that I have been treated very well by nearly everybody, regardless of the stream of the restoration. Afforded great courtesies. Usually when I would go to the historic sites, uh, and I got to stay in, in Nauvoo, I stayed in Vitamin Stables. And I looked out one window and saw the mansion house and looked out the other window and saw the homestead and looked out the other window and saw the Nauvoo house. I don't know. I'll tell you the story about going in the Nauvoo temple, but I think the statute of limitations has run out So, with all the lawyers in the class. Uh, I did feel a real sense to do this. I did feel not only the direction to do it, but the energy to do it. And that's the Aslan stuff. And uh, where I kind of come out on it is I really don't know what God's doing in it all, but I know conversations are important. And uh, I know sometimes outside eyes can see things that inside eyes don't always see. That's true about my tradition. And so for whatever it's worth, that's what I've done. And I'm honored to be among you and to... uh, be able to engage one another about such things. And I'm very happy to take questions and observations and corrections. And uh, One person already found a typo in a, in a bit. If you will be so kind as to email me uh, with any things you find that need cleaned up, that would be a great service uh, to us. So <clears throat> Do you just you want? Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. To me, the ultimate anachronism and <coughs> sort of quintessential summary of Mormonism is that Adam and Eve were Christians. So, in a nutshell, for me, that's it. Well, it's, see, you you know stuff I don't know. <laughs> Everything I know about the Book of Mormon is right here. <laughs> Other, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to make one quick point, and then I wanted to follow up with a, a question. You talked about privacy and your uh, prophecy within your previous slide. Mm-hmm. You know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in the Mormon religion, we believe that we're all capable of having prophecy because of the power of the Holy Ghost. Yeah, no, I, that via well, the power of the Holy Ghost, what, what can receive. What I was saying was, in the Book of Mormon, the way prophecy functions seems to be with leaders. And you don't seem to get kind of the rank and file that develops in Mormonism. So I, I would think you're, you know, you're certainly right about that. I'm not thinking about the religion. I'm thinking about the book okay. when, when I say that. 
The other thing I, w I wanted to ask, actually, was, you know, I'm, I'm very impressed, actually, with your knowledge of the Book of Mormon, you know, as an outsider, as a Pentecostal, but, you know, also, also uh, complimentary of the book. Why hasn't it converted you? Why hasn't it converted you from your tradition to Mormonism? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think when you do methodologically what I've done, you're not thinking. Thank you. You're not thinking so much about problems as you are trying to read with the grain. Okay. So I mean, I think the book is. Uh, if I were if I were engaging it in a different way, I would say you know the book's really wordy. You know, I'm kind of like I'm reading along and I'm like, can you just not say what you mean in the five words rather than the five sentences? Right. I mean, uh, so I, I, and don't, I don't, and don't. you find it fills in the gaps? Well, not always. Not always. Not, not always. But I mean, that's not my purpose. I'm not. Uh, I'm not reading it in that way. I'm trying to read it with the grain, and try to see things that are there. I mean, I think there are real ultimate questions about such a decision as that, and I want to be respectful of that because I'm not part of the tradition. That, that holds it to be scripture. Sure. Yeah. I too am really amazed at sort of your profound understanding of the Book of Mormon. And I guess my question is, is did you discover all that on your own? Or had you read a lot of background stuff from the LDS commentators? Well, one of the things I, I was in a position to do was to read everybody. And what I discovered was the people in Salt Lake didn't know what the people in Independence were up to and vice versa. And I'm thinking, man, this is a small world. There's good stuff. Why don't you know that? Right? So I, so I could do that. I could read people who have been critical of the Book of Mormon. Because sometimes our critics make really good points. And if we can move out, and I say we as a Pentecostal, when we've been criticized... If we can move out of a wholly apologetic kind of way of responding to more of a engaged kind of way, I find that, that that helps me. So I read a lot of stuff, but, you know, to be honest, a lot of the stuff has to do with origins. You know, an archaeological this and that or some kind of thing that's behind the text that explains all the... And, and, and I don't work that way with biblical studies. I don't focus on what's behind the text. I focus on what's in the text, right? So I don't, I don't know. That's a great question because I haven't thought about what, you know. I know that, that not many people have been asking the questions I've been asking, at least haven't written about it. Or they'll get a piece, but they won't get the, you know, there's, there's a guy named, uh, that you, you may know of, a guy named Noel, Reynolds, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Who who wrote a very helpful piece on First Nephi, but he structures it around the two occurrences he says of and thus it is amen. But there are three occurrences. Right? There's not two. Well, part of what was going on there is it seems to me he was trying to argue for this parallel in these two parts because of certain kind of chiastic things he's looking for. But that somewhat apologetic 
driven attempt kept him from seeing that there were three references and that, that those three have structural significance. So it's probably a little bit more of that. The thing that the thing that was the most helpful to me in the in my literary stuff was Grant Hardy's understanding of the Book of Mormon. Yeah. The thing that was the most helpful to me in the theology was Charlie Harrell's This Is My Doctrine. Uh, the history of interpretation or reception is all over the road. Uh, you know, so I mean you, you can get bits here and there that are that are helpful. Uh, the Pentecostalism, the Book of Mormon. There's only been one thing really written that that I, I I could use a lot. Well, that's not true. I mean, some of the people have dug around in the Irvingites, but a guy named Bill Foppel had written an excellent piece on uh, Dowie, which was really helpful. But a lot of that I was just kind of thinking through. I probably should say how I, I, I thought about not doing a section on origins at all. What I wound up doing, because everybody that read it, inside and outside, said, no, you've got to have something on origin. So what I decided to do was to write something that was controlled by two things. One was, if I were trying to write about the authorship of the pastoral epistles in the New Testament, which is really contested, how would I structure that argument? And that's how I tried to do with, with, with the origins thing. The other thing is, I tried to write the origins thing in a way that would have been helpful to me if I had read that before I started all my research. So I did three things. I first of all looked at uh, the earliest story that Smith gives about the origins, the 1832 story, which is significantly different than the later stories. Uh, and it took me a long time to figure that out. I mean, you know, I've been to all the, you know, holy sites, and <laughs> that's not the way the story was told. And then I find this thing this early. So I just tell the story. I let that story kind of speak for itself. It was just a way of saying that was kind of the early standard story. Then I look at a section I call complications to the standard story. There's no surprises there. Archaeology, DNA, 19th century, those are the complications. And then I have a section I call taxonomy, a taxonomy of readers. I lay out about five or six ways that different readers have responded. Those that say, despite the complications, the book is what it claims to be and will be vindicated as such. To a, a person who has written, a community Christ guy who's written that you've got to figure out how to divide the, 19th, the Joseph stuff from the Revelation. New Testament, that would be called redaction criticism. To another guy who says we're missing the point by arguing about history, reading is a converting experience. Right? To another guy, a guy named Blake Osler, who basically anticipates a method called intertextuality, how do things come together in a really dynamic way. To a community of Christ guy who says the Book of Mormon is a prophetic parable, which is an interesting uh, way to think about that, that critiques the dystopia of our modern world, or at that point the 19th century world, by holding up these glimpses of more utopic kind of understandings. To someone like Dan Vogel, who says it's all in Joseph's imagination. right? So I just try to give a sweep of how people have tried to respond to it. Uh, and Because uh, that would have helped me. Because when I started, I didn't know there was that kind of diversity amongst readers. Uh, and uh, 
it was one of those ways in which having read kind of broadly helped me kind of figure out where those touchstones were. Yeah. Yeah. I've always been interested in the fact that in the early 19th century of Mormonism, uh, the saints seemed to embrace speaking in tongues. Uh, they did. Brother Young uh, uh, reported to speak in tongues on several occasions. And I just wondered uh, if you had noticed any of that in the uh, how, how the early church members were, and then that's we completely drifted away from that. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, John Turner had written this magnificent biography of Brigham Young. And one of the things he tracks is the glossolalia. Yeah. And as a Pentecostal, I'm kind of like, you know, I don't know, in my old ears at that point. I mean, I'm picking up on all that. What has struck me about our two traditions is that Pentecostalism tends to have figured out a way to maintain kind of the democratization of the spirit when it comes to such phenomenon. And it seems that there was a move in the LDS tradition to kind of routinize or, I don't, I don't know whether to say consolidate or, I mean, you see it in the early Christian literature. Ignatius will say, where the church is, there, where the bishop is, there is the church, right? Where at the same time you have a document like the Didache that's coming up with these rules about how to discern a true and false prophet. If somebody orders a meal in the spirit, they're a false prophet, it says. Well, that would save us a lot of trouble today, right? Uh, but then the Johannine literature is like, you, plural, test the spirits. So there were these different ways of responding. One of the things that, that I noticed was in Pentecostalism, and I'm happy if, if, if you have examples that, because I've not been able to come up with other examples out of, any examples out of the LDS tradition, in Pentecostalism, when somebody's baptized in the Spirit, one of the first things we do is put them up to testify. I mean, the same service will say, what happened to you? Tell us about what, what the Lord did for you. And people are reflecting on what that experience was. I don't, I've not run across any of that in the Mormon literature. You get descriptions, Kirtland Temple, it's like Pentecost, right? You get, when, Je when Brigham meets Joseph, he starts speaking in tongues, and everybody around him is like, God, Joseph's going to crack the whip on him because he's just silenced that, right? So you get this kind of ebb and flow. What I also learned was in, the 19, in 1920, in part, partially in response to the Pentecostal revival, that the, the Mormon church distanced itself. And uh, two or three of the scholars, LDS historians, sharing this with me. And I said, okay, so let me get this straight. A movement that is willing to incur the wrath of the nation over polygamy doesn't want to be associated with Pentecostals. So I knew we were low on the food chain, but I didn't know how low we were on the food chain. I mean, it's a really interesting... So my, my, I recognized a lot of stuff in the early Mormon period as a Pentecostal. And I recognize stuff in the Book of Mormon about spiritual gifts. Can you imagine how disappointed I was when I went to my first Mormon church service as a Pentecostal who we're talking about the fullness of the gifts operating? And I... It's pretty subdued. It was. Yes. So, you know, but not, not the whole tradition, the broader restoration tradition is not like that. And I'm... And, uh, all like that, 
And I'm wondering, doesn't this kind of break out in Mormon worship in Africa, for example? Uh, or other contexts where people are sort of integrating their culture? Yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know about the religion. What I know is about the book. And I stopped short of kind of engaging, like, like this other question, right? Because I don't know that. I was once asked, why don't you write a book on Mormonism? I said, are you crazy? I mean, it's, it's vast. It's broad. I don't know anything about that. So, and, and also I wanted people in different parts of the Restoration to be able to say, well, he's done this book on the Book of Mormon. And uh, so I've tried not to bracket anybody out, as it were. There was a hand over here. Yeah, you, why don't you take him? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, I was oh, just oh, going to say that that's... Um, I think what sets apart Mormonism sometimes is the lay ministry. Sometimes you definitely get very good speakers that come across with a strong testimony, and you get other people that are uh, that are afraid. Of, I, I of wasn't I wasn't talking about that. Okay. I I, I, I no. I mean, because you get good and bad in any tradition, you know. I no. It was just I was expecting that spiritual gifts are going to be operating in the service in a way akin to what I knew that to be. And I was mistaken about that. They get, they get translated differently, right? Prayer for the sick, I understand, often occurs in certain groups. And prophecy can take the form of patriarchal blessings. And you, you get things translated. Speaking in tongues, you learn languages quicker to go on your mission. And, and so, you know, I'm not... I'm not judging those things. I'm saying I was not prepared for that. Right. Yeah. Let's change the subject. You mentioned some of the artistic interpretations of the Book of Mormon, but one very prominent artist that was conspicuously absent, Arnold Freeberg. Yeah, I don't much like Freeberg. And everybody's written about him. It's all that manly stuff. You know, where, you know, and, 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 and part of it, though, was I wanted to do something. I wanted to contribute some different things. Uh, Gutjahr's book on the Book of Mormon gives him a great deal of prominence. And uh, I shouldn't say I don't like him. I mean, I wasn't drawn to his art like I was <coughs> Tykert, for example. Women like him. Oh, well, here we go. <laughs> Maybe I'm feeling threatened. Maybe that's what my re- reaction was. Well, as an artist, yes. I just want to tell you that he knew that they didn't really look like that, but he's trying to show uh, in a physical way what he felt about them spiritually. Yeah. You know, that yeah. they were leaders, they were strong. And so it's kind of a heroic tradition in art that he's using. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I admired about Tykert was, and I didn't have time to say this, is that up till her, it seemed like everybody was a Caucasian in the art. And she kind of contextualizes it differently. Uh, but I defer to any to you on all matters artistic. Uh, I, that's not my that's not my expertise. I mean, I, you could do a whole monograph on artistic depictions of the Book of Mormon. It seems to me. And I was just surprised how few people knew about the very first piece that was out there. Yes. Pentecostals baptized by immersion, and if they do, do they later have a separate uh, ordinance for, for confirmation? 
I ask because I don't see a separate ordinance very often, if at all. Yeah, how Pentecostals would come at that is when somebody, could, we would say, gets saved, you know, has faith in Jesus, is becomes born again, which shows up in the Book of Mormon a good bit, the born-again language, they would be baptized at that point. But Pentecostals would take ser- very seriously the fact that to be baptized in the Spirit would be accompanied by tongue speech. And, is, there, is there immersion in water? In yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is normally... It, it's generally after the spiritual manifestation? No, that's usually when somebody professes faith and comes forward and confesses their sins and, and experiences regeneration. Uh, Pentecostals would understand the Spirit indwelling them, but that there's a distinct work of the Spirit later. That could be all at once, but normally is later, the Spirit baptism. This is the tradition that begins in the early 1900s in Azusa? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are there some faithful Pentecostals who don't have the gift of tongues, no matter how much of the Spirit they feel? Yeah, the... Pentecostals would put it like this, that that tongue speech would be a sign of spirit baptism. They wouldn't necessarily call that the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues in a Pentecostal context is people who are used to give messages in tongues in in a worship setting. So you might have, say, a group like this, everybody here have spoken in tongues, but not everybody here gets used in a church service to speak in tongues to the whole community. So they'd make that kind of distinction. And then they would have another distinction that would fit maybe with Jude 20, uh, that they pray in the Spirit devotionally. So there's, there, there's kind of, in, in Pentecostalism, some distinctions. But, but what you ask is, yeah, yes, yes, there are people who have not spoken in tongues in, in Pentecostalism. Pentecostals tend to understand that as ways in which one draws closer to God in the desire to be baptized in the Spirit. Uh, but it obviously, you could imagine, it leads to some pastoral problems because sometimes people aren't. And um, depends on the pastor how that gets thought through. Just to kind of follow up on that, uh, do... To what extent, if at all, are the tongues speech interpreted into English? Or uh, whatever language. In public speak? worship, it's always the expectation. And who does the interpretation? Often another person. Uh, and if you're leading such a worship service and you hear somebody speaking in tongues and you yourself do not have the gift of interpretation, you're praying earnestly that somebody does. Mm-hmm. And um, so when I say democratized, I mean it's really kind of, you know, it's, it's open. There, there's very little sense. I'll just speak for myself. There's very little sense in feeling like you've got control of stuff. But I have to say, having led, you know, hundreds of worship services, I'm glad I don't control stuff. I'm glad there is a God who does stuff mm-hmm. that I don't have to generate at all, <laughs> Right. But you, you discern your way through. I mean, sometimes you'll hear a message in tongues and there's no interpretation. Some people might think, ah, well, the person shouldn't have spoken out. But what might also be happening is somebody might not be obedient in the interpretation. And there have been instances where people have spoken in tongues 
and somebody who knows another language has heard their language being spoken. Mm-hmm. And of course, you do have that Pauline text that said tongues are assigned to unbelievers. So just the phenomenon itself seems to have some sort of numinous <laughs> impact at, at times. Does the person... Does the, it's a very practical thing. I mean, yeah. People from all over the place. Yeah, and, and, Peter. And, and Paul seems to talk about ecstatic speech that may not be the those. But that's right. That's one of the tensions, it seems, in the biblical text. Just... I'm curious about this because I haven't attended a Pentecostal service, but the person who interprets, does the person who speaks in tongues generally say, yes, that what I, that's what I was saying, or are they not aware themselves what they were saying? Uh, that's a good question. I think it's probably both. Uh, I've had people who, who have the gift of interpretation say to me, sometimes God will give me two words, and as I speak the rest of it comes mm-hmm. uh, the, the congregation seeks to discern that you know I had a, a guy gave a prophetic utterance one day and um, and he came to me later and he said uh, why didn't you re-? he said why didn't you correct me and I said well I said uh, what kind of response did you get from the congregation he said none I said okay mm-hmm. you know not every offense requires the nuclear option it's like with your kids, you know, not everything requires the death penalty yeah. if they do something wrong. You know, I think in discipline, the, the community tends to discern. And as a Pentecostal, growing up Pentecostal, I heard some really zany testimonies as a kid that I thought, God, that sounds bizarre. But I was afraid to say that because I didn't want to be unspiritual. But then I'd hear the adults saying, do you think that's kind of bizarre what they said tonight? And so, you know, you you start to discern pretty early uh, in that. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever been to an LDS testimony meeting? I have. I have. That would get closer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's our cutoff time. Already. Thank you so much, Chris. Uh, Thank you for listening to the Dialogue Podcast in honor of our 50th anniversary jubilee. If you enjoy listening, please consider becoming a subscriber to Dialogue by visiting dialoguejournal.com or supporting us with a donation. Thank you.